0: Hello and welcome
1: to another episode of Office Hours with Alan, Naguera, Howard, and Harper. As always, I am your host, Jaleel Howard, and I'm here with the rest of our team. It's been far too long. Gentlemen, how have you all been? Good. Great. Good. Very good. Glad we finally got back together. It's been far too long, but as always, we have plenty to discuss. Um... As you know, there there have been increased attacks on efforts aimed at providing equitable opportunities to those who are often discriminated against and marginalized in our society. Uh, What may have started as conservative rhetoric has now been put into law in some places. Legislators, mostly Republicans, uh, want to get rid of diversity, equity and inclusion offices um, end anti-bias trainings, banish diversity statements. Um, in states such as Ohio, Indiana, Oklahoma, and Texas uh, are even entering uh, entertaining legislation to chip away at these DEI efforts. Uh, and I feel like it's always our responsibility not just to provide analysts, analysis, but also clarity. Um, So before we go deeper into these attacks and their implications, do you all mind just clarifying for our listeners, what is DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why is it important, not just for education, but for society at large?
2: Diversity, equity, and inclusion is decidedly expansive. It is intended to uh, not only focus on race and people of color, but also other groups that have been both historically and contemporarily pushed to the margins in our societies, including in our schools, queer youth and teachers and families, people with disabilities, women, um, so on and so forth, right? So um, it's really important, I think, for democracy to acknowledge that these people matter, Right They're these democratic ideals of freedom, liberty, and justice for all where all is supposed to mean all so d e i initiatives and education is about helping us to become a more perfect union um and recognizing that all
3: means all yeah i would I would echo what you just said, Sean. I think that 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 we're trying to help this country live up to its lofty principles and ideals. I see some folks now putting the J on uh, top of EDI, justice. And I think justice is one of the words that comes to mind for me. And I think justice is about, is about doing what is right. Uh, justice is about recognizing and acknowledging past harms. Justice is about being as inclusive as possible. Uh, And justice is about, I think, in many ways, equity, trying to ensure that no group feels excluded or eliminated. You recognize structural disadvantage. You recognize the history of of structural racism, uh, structural sexism. All the isms that exist are not just individual acts, but they are institutional actors that 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 have affected folks for centuries in this company, um, in this country, and so that's why the goal is: how do you begin to address and chip away at all those uh, disadvantages that folks continue to face, even in the current moment?
0: And I would add that there's just simply a pragmatic benefit as well. Um, you 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 don't waste resources and the potential that's represented. In the folks who are excluded, when you bring them in, then whatever goals you're trying to achieve are, are furthered. Whatever productivity you're seeking is is multiplied.
4: So let me be a contrarian here, uh, because um, I have been offered positions as the vice president of DEI at at a couple universities, and always turned them down. And um, and 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 I'm, I've often been very skeptical of these positions. And that is because I think that in many organizations, they are used to present the appearance of doing something without actually doing anything. That is that um, typically um, the DEI officer, no one reports to them, maybe an administrative assistant, but nobody within the structure of the organization reports to them. So they have no real power um, to over hiring, over promotions, over the big issues that affect an organization. So what always worries me about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and you could throw justice in there if you want, is that it's symbolism. It's not substantive. It doesn't, we lead to substantive changes in organizations. And um, so that's been a, an issue of concern for me.
2: But Pedro, I agree with you in part that the positions tend to, to not be appropriately resourced and they tend to not be at the power epicenter of institutions and organizations that continues to be an unfortunate reality but interestingly it is not so much the diversity officer position itself that is you know under legislative attack it's more so about banning books that are inclusive of queer families and queer people. It is about banning the teaching of the truth about America's racial past and present in the curriculum and in classrooms. Um, It's, you know, the vicious attacks is about those things, less so about the so-called chief diversity officer role itself.
1: You know, thank you so much for bringing that up, Sean, because you brought us back to education, which I wanted us to come to as well. Um, These attacks have specific implications for higher education scholars in particular, that several measures have been introduced recently uh, that would limit faculty speech, both inside and outside of the classroom around topics such as race, gender, sexuality, uh, and eliminate programs that purportedly give unfair advantages to underrepresented groups. Uh, So I asked, what are the implications for the field of education specifically when we start to censor what scholars are able to say um, and for you all as established scholars, what do you see as your role in both disrupting these attacks, but also guiding younger scholars who are navigating this terrain that do not have your power and do not have your established positions that may face pushback and/or things that seriously affect the future of their careers as these attacks unfold in certain states?
4: So I'll jump in because I so I agree with what Sean said that these these positions, this work is under attack. Um in, in Florida and Texas and in and, and several states across the country. They are also going after DEA offices right now in Florida. They say anybody with that in their title, they're coming after you. They want to do an audit. So um, I, I think we have to see those attacks for what they are. It's a part of a racist backlash um, being waged across the country by right-wing politicians um, is in, a, in an effort to Really go after anything that um, promotes um, the the opportunities for Black people and other people of color in this country. So that's what we see happening, and and we'll see that with the Supreme Court action, I think in a few weeks. But um, I, I, I so then the question I come back to is: Given those attacks, where are we vulnerable? Where were we vulnerable before? Because Um, while you know so on the face of it you know um, like defend you know defending for example the curriculum and the right to a curriculum that is it is that is truthful about history absolutely but but here's where we are where we run into trouble with DEI some of what has been done in the name of DEI is questionable right Um, that is that because you have people who are consultants people who get hired in these roles there's no established body of expertise. What makes you um, qualified to be a DEI consultant? You know, did you take a course? <laughs> did you, like, what did you study? How do we know you were able to help an organization? And, um, and I, I think that results in a field that's, that's very um, poorly defined and sometimes open to uh, practices that are hard to defend.
3: Yeah, but to, OK, so I'm with you on that, Pedro, that that could there be improvement and growth in what these offices do? Yes, but I would rather use that energy to attack the institutions that they're that they're fighting against. The issue to me is, yes, DEI can be better, but you can't defend the racist and homophobic and sexist practices of institutions that they reside in. I think DEI entities are needed because they are at least. So symbolically and in many cases substantively fighting against what is wrong with, with with corporate America, with higher education. So if I had to respond to your point, Jalil, I would say that for those folks who are wanting to do this work, you need to do it well. You need to be well researched, you need to be well read, well read. You need to understand how systems and structures operate. I wouldn't say run away from this work. I would say You just have to prepare yourself to do it well because we need these institutions to be held accountable. Because if we don't hold them accountable, who will? And while it might be DEI offices today, it's free speech tomorrow. It's it's really outlawing some of the very classes that we teach will be next. And so I think that if we're not careful, there's a slippery slope here that can begin to attack all of what we have
0: fought long and hard to do. And I think if we're not careful, and this goes back to, to, to Pedro's point, when you are put in a structural situation where you are programmed for failure from the beginning, then then it, it, it creates a situation where you're blamed for something that was not within your power and your responsibility. I mean, I have uh, uh, jokingly referred to those positions as spear catcher or grenade catcher uh, positions mm. in the sense that you have all the responsibility and then little of the power and um, uh, discretion to you, uh, interfere with disrupt stuff that you know is going wrong. And so when you look at the institutional structure of the positions, if they are uh, uh, add ons with just sort of not in the structure and in the institutional process, but really something that's off to the side, then the results, which is a non-result, very often is uh, that's predictable.
2: Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, I think the only thing that I, Will add here is there are lots of self-proclaimed consultants on all sorts of things <laughs>
0: right.
2: who get paid millions, perhaps billions of dollars um to be consultants. So, you know, I just think it's um unfortunate, right, that race Ultimately, it's the thing that, that tends to be politicized in the ecosystem of, of consulting. But I do agree with you, Dean Guerra, that we want, we want actual subject matter experts who are not doing harm to schools, districts, colleges, and universities. I agree that we need standards for the integrity of the work. But I also agree with Professor Howard that the people doing the consulting aren't the biggest problem. The biggest problem are the institutions and those structural and systemic barriers that they and others are attempting to respond to. But in many in many instances, those consultants, their work gets watered down, reduced down to nothing but silliness because they're trying to operate within a mm-hmm. political structure that isn't willing to be pushed or isn't is, it, is it welcoming of rigorous structural and systemic reform. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
4: Can I pose mm-hmm. a question to Dr. Harper? Because you you've been working with these DEI officers around the country. Um, what are you hearing from them in terms of their ability to defend themselves and um and, and the work they've been doing um, now given these attacks? <clears throat>
2: yeah, I'm really glad you asked because it affords me an opportunity opportunity to go back and clean up something that I said earlier. Um, Those folks are absolutely under attack. I did not mean to suggest that they were not earlier. Um, I think I was attempting to just sequence and say that it's really the books and the curriculum and those things that's most under attack. But those folks are under attack as well. And that's what I'm hearing from them, that they feel especially vulnerable to termination um they already didn't have a ton of power and protection they have even less of that now um their budgets are being cut their staffs are being cut um yeah those that that, that's what's happening to you know many of those professionals who are these are professionals that we're talking about right these are folks who have committed their entire careers in some instances to advancing
3: DEI work. What a shame. Can I add something onto this? I think I think that Dina Nogueira is a very good question. And I think in some ways when done well, what I've seen DEI initiatives do, it forces institutions that oftentimes operate with blinders on to have to take the blinders off and begin to do something, something as simple as the count. Like how many folks of color have we hired in the last five years? How many folks of color do we have in positions of influence? How many women have we promoted to leadership positions? These are things that that women of that women and people of color think about all the time. Whenever I walk into a room, I'm always looking around to see where do I see folks, you know, who look like me? Where do I see women? And I think many folks who are on boards and in positions of power in these institutions never think about that. And so at the very least at the base level, I think with good DEI work and say, okay, let's begin to take inventory over your hiring practices, your promotion practices, who's in positions of influence and power, and then let's put together a strategic plan that says, how are we going to change this? How do we begin to recruit, retain, promote, support all the folks who have been doing the same work, if not harder than the folks who have privilege, but have not gotten opportunity? I think that's the kind of structural change. Let's look at the policies that you have in place practices that have been in the way, what are the obstacles that exist? Some of these things that we see in plain sight, I'm blown away how much folks who work in these environments every single day say, we never thought about that, or I never noticed that we have no, no Black folks in our in our leadership team. I never recognized that there are no women who are part of our executive board. So it's kind of putting the obvious to us and trying to make it obvious to them.
0: And And, and I like that, Tyrone, and I would add, of course, the accountability piece. Because Mm -hmm, the inventory mm -hmm. is so critically important and and laying out a plan for change is so critically important. But then ultimately there has to be some rigorous accountability and some real commitment to resources and authority Mm -hmm. and leadership Mm -hmm. to achieve the goals. Because we do know that what universities value, they will put resources behind, authority behind, and just make it clear that that is a priority. And then it becomes more likely to be achieved. Mm-hmm. As as
1: the host, I think also as the youngest person here, I think it's always important to bring the plight of young people to the table. Um, and I think in this discussion, as we hear folks who have dedicated their careers tackling much of what we've discussed in this in, in our podcast session today, uh, you can't help but think about all the progress that's been made in these efforts. As I think Dr. Howard, like you said, make the the obvious more obvious to folks that have those blinders on. As we now see many of these. Pro- progressions being regressed, right? As we're starting to see legislation pushing, put in place to stop that, to ban books, right? To make DEI efforts have lower budgets, whatever that means. I'm curious about what the implications are. And I'm, I'm still stuck on what you said to start us off, Dr. Harper, about a more perfect union created by these DEI efforts, what does it mean as we continue to roll back and compromise much of the things that we have called human rights, civil rights, equity, justice, all these, things. as we roll back on many of these things in our country, what do you all see as the implications and not just education, but society writ large, if we don't address these issues?
0: I think it's critical that we place this in a historical context, because what we're seeing now is this moment, but it is a repeat of a cycle of, of push for change, and then backlash and resistance, push for change. So, so so, those are patterns that we've seen. And the folk weren't called DEI back in the old days. They were special assistants too. But again, it was the same kind of cycle of when you start pushing and seeing some change, those who are invested in preserving the status quo rise up and push back. And then the people who are trying to lead the change, if they don't have the resources, if they don't have the authority, if they don't have the accountability, then 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 what gains are are achieved are minimized and even reversed.
4: I, I couldn't agree more. That um, the backlash the, um, is is historic and and it's cyclical, um, and that's why I think we have to keep in mind. You know, things like affirmative action came about not because you know, the, 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 there was a change in consciousness in this country and, mm-hmm. and you know, um, white folks in power said, oh, we need to include some people of color here. There was a movement right in this country, right the civil rights movement, the movements that followed it to demand access and affirmative action became a response, a way to, to appease those demands, which call for much more than merely a few positions um, mm-hmm. in universities and in, and in corporations. And I I think sort of put it in that perspective, I think that sometimes what we have to always keep in mind is that when we think we are making progress, sometimes we don't see how tenuous it is and how Mm -hmm. contingent it is on the the existence of a movement. And once there's no longer vigilance, then those very gains that we thought we had can be lost. And we've seen that over and over again.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's right. And I also think, Jalil, your question about consequences Um, You know, I think that one consequence is that as the teaching about DEI in schools, specifically the teaching about race in schools, as those things continue to be outlawed legislatively, we will produce a generation of illiterate Americans Mm. who will go into the professions and do tremendous harm um, mm-hmm. to women, to people of color, to queer people, um, to Muslim people, so on and so forth. Why? Because they learned not a thing about them during their you know, K-12 schooling experiences. Why? Because they couldn't. Um, and you know, that will do p- potentially irreparable harm to our democracy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot at stake right now for the current and future
3: generations. If I can add one more thing to this, I think this is rich, but last thing, cause you keep mentioning Jaleel young folks. And I think that's important here. I think one of the things I would offer to young folks is we need you engaged. We need you to be part of this work. I get disappointed when I talk to college students who say they don't see the purpose of voting. Uh, the data bears this out that folks over the age of 65 voted higher rates than folks under the age of 35. Uh, I think we've got to understand that in order to not see these rollbacks occur, we need folks engaged. Because even though demographically, uh, we will see more folks of color in this country in the in the years to come. We're not voting at the at the levels that are consistent with the numbers that we make up in this country. And that's why you continue to have a smaller minority, but they vote in higher numbers, will continue to pass legislation and begin to push for laws that does all these things that we've been talking about. So I think that we have to I mean, all the major movements in this country that we've seen. Young people have led them. Civil rights movement, young people. The women's suffrage movement, young people. Uh, the fight against the climate, young people. When young people are engaged, we begin to see transformation in this country.
2: No. Yeah. What I'll add, though, Professor Howard, I appreciate you um, talking specifically about voter apathy among college students. But I will say one of the things that really inspires me is that young people actually want to be taught the truth about mm-hmm. race. They actually want to be taught about the other dimensions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's the adults. It's not. It's not the young people who are the problem here. Um, So, you know, again, what a shame that we are willing to let these politicized attacks rob young people who actually don't want to be miseducated of, you know, the kind of, of
1: learning that they deserve. No, Sean, I so much appreciate that comment. And, and the way you all weighed in, I think I got to go back, Dr. Allen, for putting this moment in context, right, and, and putting in its place in history, as you said, is important. But I'm going back to what Sean said about the fact that these young people want to be engaged. And in many ways, this is, we kind of ended with this call to action for young people. And what I so appreciate is we're also in this moment in which young people do not have to look to teachers for their information. They have other places that they can go and learn, and they are are more than willing to go out and do that and challenge their teachers in the classroom. So I think I I love the way in which we're able to to bring this full circle, right, and putting our faith in young people that in spite of what older generations may be trying to put in place and ban, that we have a, a growing generation of young people that want to see a different reality than what they see right now. And I so much appreciate you all weighing in on that. Um, that's a wrap for us. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Office Hours. Make sure to subscribe, review, and rate our podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcast.